On today's episode of The Byword, we'll be reviewing the much-delayed, highly-anticipated Black Widow. Additionally, we'll take a look at where the MCU is headed after the finale of Loki. Tread lightly, comrades, for here there be spoilers. Welcome into the sacred timeline that is the Nerd By Word podcast. Admittedly, our variants may not be as titillating as those of the son of Lofi. They're probably doing much of the same things that we are, except I'd like to think that one version of Chris would resist the FOMO and not waste $50 on Animal Crossing. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, we are here today to submit our review for the latest feature film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's right, we are headed to the Red Room to review Marvel Studios' Black Widow. But first, it's time to keep you updated with all the happenings of the Nerdverse with... So, Dave, it would appear that a knockoff Nintendo Switch is on the horizon, eh? I don't know about knockoff Nintendo Switch. I mean, it has that form factor, but it also has some really interesting stuff going for it. So, it's been uh, rumored for a while that Valve uh, was trying to get into the handheld market and basically create a handheld gaming PC. Well, now uh, they've dropped this bombshell that later this year, the Steam Deck will arrive on the market. Uh, in fact, I believe it's supposed to come out in December. It's sort of a form factor uh, similar to the Nintendo Switch, about a seven-inch screen, and it runs a modified version of Valve's Steam OS. Uh, so there's like a console-like interface for easy navigation. You have access directly to your Steam library and the Steam store. Um, but there's also the ability to uh, install uh, third-party applications, so including like game launchers that aren't Steam, so Epic Game Store and that sort of thing. So it's not like it's a closed system like the Switches, which opens it up for some really interesting possibilities, I think. Um, all the specs look pretty decent on it, um, and it, it generally looks like a really uh, cool little machine. Uh, now, if I remember correctly, the base version is like $399 and will have 64 gigabytes of storage. There's a $529 model, which has 256 gigabytes of storage. And finally, the most expensive is 649, uh, which has 512 gigabytes of storage, as well as an anti-glare uh, glass screen. Now, what's really interesting is that they opened up already um, pre-orders for this thing. And they're pretty much already sold out. All the pre-orders are taken. And scalpers, lo and behold, here they are again, have already popped up and are demanding ridiculous prices on uh, third-party websites for these pre-ordered machines. I think the highest one uh, I have seen reported on is something like $5,000, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I'm very, very curious how this thing is going to come across because on the one hand you know the switch has sort of dominated this console um, um, handheld hybrid market but if uh, steam and valve play their cards right here you have the potential of being able to play a game on your pc for this quote-unquote console experience and then pick up the same game uh, in handheld mode on your steam deck 
So it's a really interesting piece of technology. And I'm so curious about it because I think, you know, being able to put a full PC basically into a form factor like the Nintendo Switch opens up a lot of interesting possibilities. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, so PC gaming um, is something that has just passed me by. It's never really, um, you know, struck my interest. You know, with the, with the PCs, I've usually um, have something that's like a family computer or, you know, something that is not necessarily dated, dedicated towards gaming, you know, high speeds and stuff like that. So um, also there comes, you know, and I've detailed this on the show before with um, my, my cerebral palsy, my motor skills, I really struggle with like the onset of it's completely changing it up when it comes to you know controlling games with the with the pc so um this this is not my neck of the woods to be able to to offer a whole lot of um you know insight but uh it really is like a, a really interesting look at, at innovating the game and and kind of switching it up um so i i'm interested to watch this develop nonetheless yeah, I am. I'm too. And there is, you know, the idea, I think here uh, a little bit of not just necessarily competing with uh, the Switch, but offering sort of a new gaming ex- experience to PC gamers, because ultimately the Steam Deck is not going to use like, you know, keyboard and mouse. It is more, you know, traditional controller based. So it's it's just another avenue, I think, for PC gamers to, you know, explore PC gaming. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Chris, when it comes to, you know, having fantastic deals, you and I talk a lot about, you know, stuff like um, Xbox Game Pass, which by the way, is also there's a there's a PC version of that. Uh, And then you have, of course, the Epic Game Store, which has a tendency of giving away for free a couple of games a month right now. So you can build uh, a library of really, really good games uh, on a PC very quickly. Um, and then being able to take that library of games on the go like this, uh, I, I think there's real potential here. Yeah, for sure. Um... All right, Chris. So uh, you got some bad news for us this week. What have you got? Uh, well, this is a little bit late, and I, I uh, kind of avoided the nerd rage because I didn't want to spectacle too much, but it got too much to bear. Uh, so news broke a couple weeks ago on July the 2nd that nerdy award-winning program, subtle plug, uh, Lovecraft Country, based on the novel by Matt Ruff, uh, would not be returning for a second season. Fans, yours truly included, were outraged especially after showrunner Misha Green posted a tease of the quote-unquote show Bible as to what had been planned for season two. Uh, what was revealed by Green is also drawing heavy speculation for the reasoning behind HBO's decision not to pick the show up for a second reason. Her tweet from July the 2nd reads, A taste of the season two Bible. Wish we could have brought you hashtag Lovecraft Country supremacy. Thank you to who... Thank you to everyone who watched and engaged. Hashtag no confederate. The post also includes a map of a redistribution of territory in the continental United States, including much of the southeastern portion of the country being attributed to black citizens and under their jurisdiction. The no confederate hashtag is a reference to a show that was under development by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the two men responsible for the other shite that is the eighth season of Game of Thrones, in which the American Civil War ended in a stalemate and slavery never came to an end. The show was only confirmed to be canceled in January 2020 after years of protest. 
One begs the question as to why an alternative history storytelling like Confederate can go so far into development before finally caving to pressure, but a black-led alternative history can't seem to see the light of day. Amazon Prime's The Man in the High Castle received a full four seasons to tell the story of the Nazi-run United States based on Philip K. Dick's novel. At this point, it would seem that fans must continue to pin their hopes on a fictional country in Africa in order to see that dream realized. The proverbial chickens came home to roost, however, as Emmy nominations were announced this past week, and Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft Country received 18 nominations, including an Emmy's first. Byword beloved Journey Smollett and Jonathan Majors, more on him later in this show, became the first black actress and black actor in a lead role to be nominated for the same show. This news, combined with Misha Green's big-time deal with burgeoning streaming service Apple+, Plus, uh, has hope springing eternal once again that Lovecraft Country may see life on another platform. Netflix has accurately received quite a bit of flack for canceling popular and well-received shows, but it would appear that Warner Brothers and HBO Max said, hold my beer. Warner seems to have an endless clip shooting into their own foot, don't they, Dave? You ain't kidding. I, I don't even know what to say to this story. Um, so I've not watched Lovecraft Country, but the reviews were obviously fantastic, and it was definitely on my radar, something I wanted to sit down and watch. Now, in fairness, I don't have a whole lot of time to watch uh, television. And so the fact that I even got caught up with the six episodes of Loki is almost miraculous at this point. Um, so Lovecraft Country is still on my radar, and I'm really looking forward to sitting down and watching this first season. And I really do hope it comes back for a second season. The idea that something that is so beloved and so critically acclaimed to just be put out to pasture uh, the way it was, it really boggles the mind. And yes, it, it does sort of um, bring to mind stuff like, you know, what's going on with Netflix, where they'll give a show a season and then suddenly just unceremoniously cancel it, even though it has good numbers and good reviews. So I don't know what's going on with just, you know, quote unquote, premium television, you know, the streamers and, and HBO and the whole situation is so, so odd to me because they're constantly, instead of, you know, giving creators um, the, the space and the time to tell a complete story, they're constantly just kind of like fast fooding uh, television. They do like, oh, we'll do a season and then we just do something else. You know what? If you want to do that, announce it as such, just say, hey, this is going to be a limited series and, and move on with life so people don't get so invested and so disappointed. And the creators know that they need to, well, create uh, in such a way that they're telling a complete story within the, the constraints given. But this kind of stuff is just, it's very uh, disrespectful, I think, to creators and also very disrespectful to the fans. So, you know, kudos to Lovecraft Country for all the awards nominations. I hope it wins a bunch of them. Um, hopefully, Warner learns a lesson here. Yeah, it just it's just wild to me that, that Warner, like, doesn't get it. I mean, like, say what you will about uh, the Snyder Bros and all that. It's been well documented on this show, our feelings on that. So um, they're they're up in arms at a constant rate. But like even we have, you know, Margot Robbie coming out, um, you know, in advance of the Suicide Squad saying she doesn't know if she's going to play Harley Quinn again. Most everybody uh, adores her in that role. And like I, I don't know what their plan is going forward. Uh, it, it's just absolutely bonkers to me. I don't know what they're doing. I don't think anybody does. I don't think they know what they're doing. And that really right there is the problem. 
All right, that's a wrap on nerd news for this week. After this break, we'll be giving you our review of Marvel Studios' Black Widow. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Jasmine. And we're the hosts of Geeks Unleashed. The weekly pop culture news and reviews podcast. We review and discuss what's current in the world of comics, movies, and television. You can check us out on social media. We are at Geeks Unleashed, and you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's the moment you've all been waiting for this week's After several setbacks and delays due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Black Widow was finally released theatrically as well as on Disney Plus with the premiere access option on July the 9th. The film has set pandemic era, I guess that's the terminology now, uh, records with $80 million domestically its opening weekend, $78 million internationally, sixty. Million dollars in the aforementioned Disney Plus rentals for a total of about 215 million dollars. These impressive numbers only become more impressive when you take into consideration that the film has not yet even been released in the gargantuan China market, which reportedly is targeting an August release date. As is customary for our movie reviews, we each like to share three likes and three dislikes for each film. So, Dave, what is first up on your like board for Black Widow? So I'm just going to let you know that uh, our listeners need to know that the thing I liked most about the movie, you stole. So we'll be talking about that next. You called dibs. (laughs) I did. I watched it as soon as it dropped. So I called dibs. Again, uh, it was very impressive that I even found the time to watch it at all, given, you know, my constraints with television. So... Uh, the dibs have been earned. So the thing I probably uh, like the most, besides what we're getting ready to talk about in your first point, is probably David Harbour's Red Guardian, which I think is just a, a very fascinating and fun character to have in this kind of movie. Um, what a flawed character. And, you know, we've, it's not like the MCU hasn't had flawed characters before. Uh, I mean, Ant-Man is a pretty flawed guy. He's just a regular dude, you know, trying to do his best. But there's something about Red Guardian, I think, that just works really, really well and gives us a different kind of, of character that I don't think we've seen a lot in the MCU before. He He's sort of, you know, the hero in his own story, and he has these delusions of grandeur and tell stories about you know fighting captain america while captain america was still frozen in the ice <laughs> wants to know from black widow whether steve rogers talks about him and you know that th- this just a very 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 cool character and yet underneath all that you know that bluster and that self-importance and that that arrogance there's also you know a real human being with a lot of heart and a lot of love for his you know quote-unquote adopted family and so I, I really like that character and i really like david harbour's performance as that character i think he he made that character his own in a very unique way and i really enjoyed it one of the things that i find extremely regrettable you know since we're you know moving phases so to speak in the mcu and we've lost you know We've lost, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, uh, and we've lost Captain America now, that these actors are pretty much done with those roles. is really sad to me because I would love to actually see Red Guardian and Captain America 
meet for real. And you have Red Guardian and all his bluster referencing, you know, a rivalry that doesn't exist. And Steve Rogers is just standing there saying, who is this guy? I can just, <laughs> I can just see the scene play out. And it would be so fun to actually be able to see something like that, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, when he utters the line, my father make toilet on my hands, like, I, I absolutely lost it. Uh, he's He's absolutely delightful. And like you said, in this flawed kind of I think somebody else referenced it as like this father of the year vibe. And by his standards, um, based on the ideology that he ascribed to, like he was an amazing and incredibly successful father. It's just nobody else is using kind of that grading scale when it comes to parenting. So I, I absolutely loved his portrayal. And it's it's no surprise that so many fans are clamoring for a Red Guardian series um, coming out of this movie. Yeah, I would totally watch that. But, you know, beyond that, um, and we can talk a little bit more about that as our review goes along, I really hope that some of the strands that this movie introduced don't get dropped completely. Uh, Yelena, obviously, is going to show back up. They've already hinted at that. Um, But I would like to see Red Guardian uh, show up again in some capacity. Um, I hope it's not just a a one and done for David Harbour in the MCU. All right, Chris, what is your first big like, the one you call dibs on? All right, Dave, I I, I hope, I, I think you'll be in agreement with this, but th- this podcast from here on out is a Yelena Belova Stan podcast and Florence Pugh Stan podcast because that was one of the most tour de force performances that I've ever seen in a comic book superhero adjacent film. I, I mean, I was absolutely blown away by the performance, by the character work, by the script writing. And, you know, somebody hinted at that she was given all the best lines, but oh, man, she ate that up. Also, major 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 points to Florence Pugh for be able being able to maintain that eastern european russian slavic accent throughout the entirety of the film because that is a tall order not a lot of people have been able to accomplish that task yes we're looking at you elizabeth olsen we love you but yeah the accent is a real trick and it's particularly that accent that 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 people seem to have a real struggle with but she absolutely nailed it she has the best she and, and a lot of people are like, I feel bad for Scarlett Johansson because this was her movie in, in, in a lot of ways. As she stole the show, but I mean, every line from, from the whole running poser joke and, and the posing uh, to the point where she actually accidentally lands in that same Black Widow pose and like just shudders with disgust for herself. Um, the The entire running... Um, pockets in her vest that would make Rob Liefeld shudder with joy. Oh, man. Like, everything about Yelena Belova has me in high hopes for not just that character going forward, but the entire universe going forward. Because, um, you know, if we look into the end credit scene, which we'll touch on later, no matter how you feel about it, it seems like she's going to be one of the stars going forward for this universe. And, you know, it's good to know that the MCU is still capable of introducing new characters and making them, you know, that compelling. Uh, because we're, we're going to have to at some point face the facts that, you know, with a lot of these characters and a lot of these actors circling out of this franchise, 
that they're gonna have to keep introducing new characters and and do so effectively and compellingly and not i don't even want to say as replacements although basically yelena feels a lot like she's supposed to kind of fit into the natasha mold in 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 the future of the mcu but uh, we're losing a lot of the big ones as i've mentioned earlier captain america and iron man are gone um more uh, scarlett johansson's black widow is now gone uh, from all we know uh and and more are probably going to follow so yeah i'm really really pleased with this character with the performance it was absolutely spot on i will say um the post-credit scene is something i'll talk about a little later it I didn't like the post-credit scene, and we'll talk about why at a later point. I'll just put a pin in it and hang on to that for later. I will say that my the absolutely and and a lot of people are like, yeah, she's so great, she's so awesome because of all the funny lines that she had. But for me, what really brought it home and what made her probably my favorite character to watch going forward in the MCU is that scene at the dinner table where they're all talking about how the three-year mission in Ohio was just fake. It was all a ruse. It was just an undercover. It was just part of the job. And she has this truly emotional, impactful scene that probably, for me at least, it carried the most emotional impact of, that was my life. That was real for me. You're my family. You're my mother. You're my father. You're my sister. Don't tell me it wasn't real. And and it just really brought, I think, so much of the movie home. I totally agree with that. And the scene that she shared with, uh, with David Harbour, where he started singing... Uh... American Pie to her, I thought was absolutely spot on as well. It was a, a a real nice, quiet character moment, and they both carried that scene perfectly. Absolutely. All right, Dave, what is uh, number two on the leaderboard for you for likes for this film? Well, you know, I, I really like the action scenes overall. I think it it almost had that that uh, spy bond almost like a jason Bourne kind of vibe to it in the hand-to-hand combat and how how the fighting was done particularly in the early goings of the movie things got a little more um i guess superhero-y in the finale but uh leading up to that i really appreciated all the action scenes the fight between natasha and yelena in particular uh was really really good um and really, you know, revealed a lot about both of their characters and how they relate to each other. So I was very, very pleased with the action scenes. Um, other than that, uh, I would say I wished that maybe they would be a little more careful with the camera work uh, in those action sequences. Although I really like the fighting style and all of that, it always feels like there's like a different director at work in some of the action scenes and things just get a little shaky. Maybe that's just me, but there's a, the, the camera movement feels very different in a lot of the action scenes in the MCU. But the, the fight choreography and, and how it was executed was absolutely perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, Kind of, this is this is very um, very in line with my next like of the film. Is it's it's it all lines up and it all is is pitch perfect, especially from like and you mentioned this like a choreography sense. Like these are well thought out, planned out fight sequences, and um, really the only thing that I, I could even think as as far as a comparison is like Captain America: The Winter Soldier. How well thought out and planned those sequences were. This this definitely gave me. Uh, inklings of that film as well yeah absolutely i can agree with that all right chris what is your second like of uh, black widow oh we we hinted at it with your um with your like uh, and and they not so subtly hinted at it with a a james bond 
um, kind of Easter egg, if you will. But they absolutely nailed the genre, in my opinion. This whole James Bond, Jason Bourne, like you said, spy flick, I think it all just worked on so many different levels. And I thought it was, you know, perfectly kind of like a a beautiful crescendo send off to the Black Widow character, if you will, because it was everything that a, a Black Widow property should be. It's a double agent um, working in the shadows, stuff like that. And I I loved all like the callbacks to spy flicks of the past with, you know, something like James Bond, even as overt as that reference was, I thought it was perfect. And and it it felt like I was watching an old school Bond flick or, you know, like a Jason Bond, a Jason Bourne type movie. And I, I absolutely loved it. It was nonstop action. Uh, My adrenaline was pumping you know, for the entirety of the film, you know, with, with a few brief pauses for the, the dramatic family notes and, and the, the one-liners, but it felt, it felt very much in line with the, the subgenre that they were going for. Yeah, I agree with that. And really shout outs to that opening title sequence, which was really um, affecting and a little disturbing, really. Uh, I thought it was a very, very cool way of introducing the idea of the Red Room and what uh, actually happened to uh, Natasha and Yelena at the beginning um, of their fighting career, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think the the whole genre trappings were absolutely the correct way to go. And I really enjoyed that as well, Chris. All right, Dave, what is your third and final like of the film? I like that this movie exists, Chris. I know this might sound weird, but we, we had Black Widow very early uh, in, in the MCU. I mean, this character popped up for the first time in Iron Man 2 and and was pretty much immediately a compelling character. And then, you know, through the course of Avengers uh, and Avengers Age of Ultron, she just became more compelling. And yet... Marvel, for some ungodly reason, was sitting there and would not give her a movie. And I never quite understood the hesitancy of making a Black Widow movie, especially considering how rich the lore is in the comic books, all the different directions they could have taken with her. And I'm disappointed, Chris, that this movie is an in-between quill, that they literally had to go back in the timeline and squeeze this between two different movies, which... You know, it it feels almost like an afterthought in some ways. And that's just not the way it it just should have went. So I'm just pleased that this movie exists, that they finally made a Black Widow movie. It's just so, so regrettable that this is Scarlett Johansson's swan song, for all we know. And we're not going to see her back in this role. So so this is a, a, a one and done and unlikely to be a franchise unless they decide to move forward with uh, Yelena's character as the new Black Widow moving forward. And it's just a real disservice to such an important character in the comics and in the MCU, I think. So although this seems a little negative, what I've been saying, what it comes down to is I'm just glad that this movie exists and it was finally released, Chris. Yeah, and so I... I knew a lot of this previously, but um, with the release of this film, a lot of it was brought back to light. Um, and that is the name of Ike Perlmutter. And I, if you are a fan of the MCU, if you are a fan of female-led superhero films like Captain Marvel, like Black Widow, if you're a fan of uh, superhero films that have you know characters of color as the lead, like Black Panther... I highly suggest that you do a just a quick Google search on who Ike Perlmutter is. 
Um, and just kind of give you the Cliff Notes version, Ike Perlmutter was a big executive, big name, like heavy influence at Disney. Uh, and as a result, Marvel Studios at the time, back in the early phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like we're talking phase one, phase two, big heavy influence, kind of like the buck stops here. And th- he is, for all intents and purposes, the reason that this movie took so long to make the reason that captain marvel took so long to make and feels so kind of wonky and out of place the reason that black panther took so long to make is because he explicitly said that female-led and uh persons of color-led films will not sell and so therefore we will not make them so that's why my belief and uh, it seems like a lot of people are of the same sentiment that this movie did not, um, you know, get made until now. And then you add in the unfortunate delays due to the pandemic and it just, you know, adds gasoline to the fire. So a big F you to Ike Perlmutter for all those thoughts and sentiments and the reason that we had to wait so long for this movie that should have taken place in what, 2014, 2015? Yes. So, uh, Chris, final like of the movie. What have you got? Oh, my goodness. And this is like tantamount to the perfect nailing of the genre as well. The here's what really happened. Flashbacks detailing their plans were so amazing to me, um, including that whole like face technology, face stealing face off type thing that harkens back to Winter Soldier, another wonderful spy subgenre MCU entry. I loved that, where you didn't know which way was up, which way was going. Was Melina betraying them? Was she like in cahoots with the Red Room? Was she in cahoots with Dracoff? You didn't know what was happening. And then you had this like flashback sequence twice, I believe, in the film of their plan after you already arrived there. So it, it was just super cool to kind of it just kind of had you buy into the whole like nonstop thrill ride and you, it was just amazing. And I absolutely loved it. And the, just the detail in their plans, it wasn't just, you know, come in guns blazing to a room and fighting off of emotion. And you want to take out Dreykov because he's caused so much. It was this meticulous planning between Natasha and Melina on their part um, that was just incredible, and it was awesome to see how meticulous they were and how intelligent their plan was. Yeah, so I will agree with this to a certain extent. I like, you know, the sort of how it kept building, and you think, oh, they got, they got them, and uh, the bad guys got, you know, they're onto them, they're onto the plan, and then they would kind of, you know, invert that. I really did like that. The problem, I think that I had with the first time they did that and moving into the finale was that I kind of remembered winter soldier. And so I immediately said, Oh, they must've swapped spots. So I kind of guessed the first of those twists and, and that kind of um, took me out of the movie for a second. So I, I really like uh, the idea of that sort of twisting back and forth, the flashbacks revealing the plan in pieces Um I really, really like that. I just wish that the the way it started would have not been reliant on the same trick that they used in Winter Soldier. It would have been fun if they came up with something a little different and a little original. So I would have not, 
you know, been able to guess it just off of my Winter Soldier memory what was going on. That makes sense. I can I can ride with that. All right, let's flip into the negative, Dave. What is your first dislike of this film? Uh, so, um, on the one hand, and I read a little bit up on this, on the one hand, I appreciate the filmmakers not wanting to have any of, how did they say it, any of the boys, any of the Avengers guest starring in this movie. And it makes sense within the context of when the movie is placed, because the Avengers are broken up, several of them are in jail, uh, after a civil war. So all of that makes perfect sense, except one specific piece, and that's Budapest. The problem is that they they sort of break in those scenes the cardinal rule of storytelling, which is show, don't tell. What they do is they have Natasha explaining to Yelena how her... Um, how she defected and became a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, rather than actually flashing back and showing it. And they're doing this very clearly because they want to avoid a a cameo uh, by Hawkeye. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity, especially in light of the post credit scene. I think having a scene where we see... Um, you know, Hawkeye being sent to, to kill Natasha, but changing his mind and instead trying to recruit her, even even just, you know, two or three minutes in the runtime, and then have her explain the rest about, you know, the assassination attempt on the, the guy that controls the Red Room and all that. I think that would have went a very long way in, in making that whole process of her switching sides more... Um, more clear, more palatable. And it's also an incredibly dramatic moment. Somebody is sent to kill you, but instead they show mercy and try to recruit you. That That's the stuff that great drama is made of. And so making the decision to not, not show any of that, I think was a misstep. Again, especially in light of the post credit scene and how this whole thing is looping back onto Hawkeye in a lot of ways. So I was not... I was not fond of this whole missed opportunity, Chris. Yeah. And that makes, I think for me, I think it, um, I think we could chalk it up to it's unfortunate placement in the timeline, at least the real timeline. I think in a, in a perfect world, we would have had this movie, um, you know, not necessarily after Avengers, but uh, let's say probably after civil war, so, you know, things would have been different and it would have been no big deal for Jeremy Renner to make an appearance here. But it just feels like it's just too little too late uh, for for a lot of different reasons here. I totally agree with that. All right, Chris, what is your first dislike of the movie? Um, so by and large, I really just like love this movie. And there was a was I had to really kind of comb through things. Uh, including a second viewing to try and find anything that I didn't really like overarchingly. So I, I kind of want to shift it a little bit. My dislikes are really just kind of nitpicks that I'm really having to kind of reach for. Um, some easier than others. And the first one was a pretty easy one. Uh, the seemingly indestructible vials. Like these vials are um, the MacGuffin, if you will, of this film, like the counter agent to this mind control. But they are tossed through and around and survive car accidents and then are used as a grenade of sorts. So it's just, uh, you know, a lot of suspending disbelief when it comes to these seemingly indestructible yet destructible vials. 
Yeah, we talked actually uh, very recently when we were talking about the Star Wars movies about this whole, you know, MacGuffin storytelling thing that a lot of people have going on. And I'm not super fond of always, you know, using that kind of gimmick to tell a story. Although I have to say the vials here were fairly understated and a little um, a little less offensive, I think, than some MacGuffins. Um, but I totally agree with you that uh, we should have seen some break every once in a while. It would have been even, you know, very interesting to have sort of a running problem with that, that they have a limited supply. And then in the course of their fighting, one gets dropped, another one gets dropped. They start becoming concerned whether they're going to have enough to free enough people to help them. There's there's inherent drama in that that I think they could have milked if they wanted to. Yeah, for sure. Dave, what is second up on your dislike list? You know, this movie, by, by its nature, is not as CGI heavy, I think, as some others. Uh, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, I prefer practical effects, frankly, as much as possible anyways. But there is still in the finale uh, a little bit of wonky CGI, I think, that I, I kind of dislike. Particularly in that moment when, you know, um, Yelena uh, kills the bad guy and then is, you know, blown backwards and is falling. You know, that that, that whole part looked... It looked a little fakey. It didn't look like a true, if you get my meaning. So um, considering how long this movie has been delayed, uh, it's it's hard for me to believe that they wouldn't take a little bit more time to maybe clean up some of that before they release it, Chris. Yeah, for sure. Um, I felt like there were... I, I will say I felt like that um, it was really hard to kind of land the plane, if you will, Um with this, it, it was just like that's and that's some of the things with like action, nonstop adrenaline rush types of films. It's like, where do we get off? So it was in, you know, when when you introduced action sequences like that, CGI, and you're leaning on that uh, is prone to issues like this. It didn't take me out completely, but I, I get what you're saying. All right, Chris, what is your second dislike of this movie? OK, so I guess I'm in the I'm in the minority here. I liked what they did with Taskmaster. I felt like what they did uh, with that reveal of it being Drakov's daughter and it just made con it made so much more sense in the context of the story that they were telling. Um, you know, if you're a comic book purist and it has to come from the pages, you're just setting yourself up for your own disappointment. I mean, what do we have to gain from just another white guy that's a merc for hire? And I'm not belittling the character of Taskmaster. I know the character design and his power set. Incredibly popular amongst, you know, the comic book reading and the video game playing community. But it just made so much more sense. Also, it's the Taskmaster program, which opens it up for someone else taking the programming and unleashing it or, or what have you. So we can get Tony Masters. Her name was Antonia. Um, I, I say all that to, to say this. And, and also, it, it it's a perfect kind of tie up because it was the one thing that Natasha could not get past. The one thing, the one big regret from her past. And to be able to release her from that, I felt like was a nice way to tie up all those ends before her un unfortunate passing in Endgame. That being said, I do wish we had more time with the Taskmaster character. I Even if it's something like just a couple more scenes where she is tracking down the Widows or something to that effect, I, would, I, 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 I love what they did with the character. I just wanted more. 
I think that is uh, actually one of the things I really disliked about this movie. Um, so I'm not married to the Taskmaster character from the comic books in any way, shape, or form, and I don't mind some reinterpretation occasionally, particularly of villains, um, because they're really vehicles to tell the hero's story. And so if, if that's not working, then obviously not a good villain. However, the Taskmaster character here is just completely undercooked. Uh, it's not really so much a character as it is uh, Taskmaster is sort of an object, um, a, a MacGuffin in itself, if you will, that somehow is just influencing um, Natasha's state of mind. But because Taskmaster is mind-controlled for 99% of the movie, there's not really a character there. Uh, the Taskmaster character lends itself for cool fight scenes and everything, but there is no character. It would have been so much better if they would have revealed who was Taskmaster just a little earlier and maybe had some scenes of her trying to fight against the programming, what exactly the relationship was between her and her father. Like, just within the context of the movie, I was not clear at the reveal of who Taskmaster is, of whether she too was mind-controlled the way the Black Widows were, or if she was doing this of her own volition because she hates Natasha for what she did to her. That wasn't clear. And so when Natasha is retrieving these vials and is trying to get these vials to Taskmaster, I was like, well, what happens if this doesn't work? Maybe she just hates your guts. It was just not very clear because she was such a non-entity of a character. That was a real missed opportunity there. Yeah, I can agree with that. I, I mean, any anything that you can give more of and build something of substance and real kind of stakes, if you will, I think that would have been an absolute improvement. Absolutely, Chris. All right, Dave, your final dislike of the film. You've hinted at it heavily. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the post credit scene. Um, so the post credit scene, spoilers, uh, we're going to have to talk about it, uh, basically shows uh, Yelena visiting um, Natasha's grave. And it's sort of revealed that she is still basically acting as an assassin. She's still out there taking jobs, killing people. And her new job is to take down Hawkeye, which is um, no doubt uh, a, a teaser of sorts for um, what we're going to be getting in the uh, Hawkeye Disney Plus show. So, so that's quite wonderful. Uh, I love that we got, you know, a teaser for the Hawkeye show. What I don't like, however, is that we're once again in superhero storytelling, going down the road of two people who are supposed to be heroic, who are supposed to be people we're rooting for, having some kind of darn misunderstanding and spending half of the story trying to beat the snot out of each other before they actually, you know, take a step back and say, oh, we're actually supposed to be on the same side. It is such tropey storytelling and i i cannot believe that they couldn't come up with a more interesting way of introducing yelena to hawkeye other than well she's coming to kill him um i'm just so tired of batman v superman syndrome i'm so tired of civil war syndrome why do we have to keep having the heroes just beaten up on each other can't they just just work together and beat up the bad guys that would be really nice for a change chris yeah, so I didn't have the exact same reactions that you did. Um, it would explain sort of the bandages on his face that we're seeing in, in the uh, set photos or the teaser images for the series. Um, what I'm more interested in and intrigued by is if you've seen the um, after credit scenes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you know that Val, the 
uh, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who's a big haul for the MC. That's a big get, by the way. Um, is kind of assembling this team. So a lot of people are speculating like a Thunderbolts type thing with US agent. What I am excited about with this post credit scene is if she's going to be on the same team as John Walker, I hope she beats the snot out of him and, and, you know, gets beats a little sense into that clown. Um, but yeah, so I, I see what you're coming from. That is, that is a, a very tired trope and I totally agree. So Chris, what is your final dislike of the movie? Um, and again, these are not really like overarching dislikes because, uh, and we'll get to this later probably, I, I really just love this movie overall. Had a great time, watched it twice, loved it even more the second time watching it. But so just a nitpick, why in the world is a super soldier like Red Guardian just chilling out in Gen Pop in prison? Like he's not in solitary, he's not in max security, he's just arm wrestling people and nobody's worried that he can do, you know, like this mass breakout thing. I mean, like when they they start to break him out, he immediately just punches through the glass, which he could have done the whole time. So just a little nitpick. Uh, I feel like he should have had some higher security around him. You know, I can agree with that. Um, although I have to say I absolutely love the, the whole arm wrestling scene. It would have been sad if he would have not gotten that part. Uh, it was It was pretty amusing overall. I will say... As a huge mutant fan, the actor, and he's Dutch, so he's a you know he's he's a fellow, at least ancestr- ancestrally speaking. You know, if he ain't Dutch, he ain't much. But the guy that played Ursa, coming out and saying that he's the first mutant in the MCU because it was an Easter egg to play Ursa Major, this mutant bear dude. You had two lines. Get over yourself. You're not the first mutant. Get out of here. <laughs> That's pretty good, Chris. All right, that wraps up our review of Black Widow. What did you think? Be sure to hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or individually at that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris with your individual thoughts. When we come back from this, our final break, we're going to be coming back for the dessert round of this meal, Nerd Commendations. All right, we're back for our final segment, everybody's favorite time of the week. Now, Dave, you just can't seem to quit Star Wars, can you? No, I really can't. It's it's love, and it's bigger than the both of us. What can I say? <laughs> um, I actually want to talk a little bit about a book uh, that very recently released, I believe, uh, on July 12th, um, called Secrets of the Force. Now I had the opportunity uh, in uh, reviewing the book for uh, the Nerd Daily to uh, get an advanced reader copy and sit down and read this behemoth of a behind-the-scenes book uh, that purports to be the complete uncensored and unauthorized oral history of Star Wars. And it's really, really quite good. So there are two authors uh, that were working on this. Uh, Edward Gross, uh, who has been a film and television journalist for a long time, and Mark Altman, who is also a former journalist as well as a writer and producer for film and television. And the two have a history of doing sort of these oral history books. In fact, they did a two-volume set going over uh, the 50-year history of 
Star Trek, uh, the first 25 years and the next 25 years. And each book is well over 500 pages. So you have, you know, a thousand pages of, of interviews of people talking about the behind the scenes stuff of how these things were made. And the Star Wars one is absolutely engrossing. There's really, really fascinating background information here about, you know, the various scripts, for example, that George Lucas went through as he tried to sort of find the story of Star Wars and all the alternate versions that exist. A lot of behind the scenes stories from, you know, actors and how the special effects were made. Um, it's, it's really, really absolutely fascinating. And the way uh, Gross and Altman sort of string these interviews together into a cohesive narrative with only very minimal um, writing themselves, sort of connective tissue, is absolutely awesome. Uh, none of the interviews wear out their welcome. Everything is incredibly interesting. Now, some of the stories that you read in here, if you're a longtime Star Wars fan, you've probably heard before, uh, but it's also interwoven with a lot of new information. And what you get is a really interesting, complete picture of how the Star Wars uh, saga was made. Um, it covers all nine movies in the Skywalker saga. It uh, talks about the holiday special. It talks about television, uh, merchandising, and the early toy line. It is very, very comprehensive. The only real problem that I noticed with the movie is really not um, the fault of uh, Gross and Altman. And that is simply that the closer you get to the present day, the less open people seem to be. Like when, when they're interviewing people that were there when the original Star Wars movie was made, people are brutally honest and, and have no problem criticizing you know, decision-making or behavior of you know actors or behavior of George Lucas. And it's very revealing. But by the time you hit you know the rise of Skywalker, you kind of hit these diminishing returns. Like it's too recent and people don't feel comfortable being open, maybe because they want to you know work with Disney again or are still involved with Star Wars in some capacity. And so, so that's a little sad. Um, but other than that, man, it is a great book, highly recommended. It's basically catnip for Star Wars fans. And if you want to read a little bit uh, more about my take on the book, you can always check out uh, thenerddaily.com where my full review should be posted shortly. My historian senses are tingling. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so this is, this is, I mean, like nerd love and uh, being a history nerd, like this is like a mashup of everything that I wanted. And I think I've detailed it on the show before, but, uh, I, I listened to, uh, a rewatchables podcast about the making of, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and like how Spielberg, like, like as, as a true friend of George Lucas, like really wanted to work together on this project, but he had a lot to do with reining him in. And George is just, just big idea type of guy. And like, when it comes to like the, the execution of things, you see something like the prequels where, yeah, the big ideas are nice, but the execution falls flat. So I'm really interested to dive into this one. Yeah. I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating, Chris. All right, so what is your nerd commendation for this week? Gunpowder Milkshake on Netflix. Just go freaking watch it. That's it. That's all. That's my nerd commendation for this week. All right, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, this movie is so awesome. I've been waiting forever for this to come out. Just an adrenaline-fueled nonstop thrill ride that is a ridiculous amount of fun. Imagine a film that is equal parts John Wick, Kill Bill, and Desperado, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, 
but with some of the most badass leading ladies that Hollywood has to offer, that's Gunpowder Milkshake. So when Gun for Hire Sam, played by Karen Gillan, uh, incidentally kills the wrong man's son, everyone is out to get her, including her own uh, organization of assassins. On the run with eight and three quarters year old Emily, played by Chloe Gilm- uh, Chloe Coleman, she goes in search of help from her long lost mother, Lena Headey, and librarian aunts, played by Carla Gugino, Her Majesty Angela Bassett, and our supreme badass in chief, Michelle Yeoh. This movie features endless wit, one-liners, pristine action scenes, and the most perfect usage of slow motion. Insert wink to camera. This is a no-holds-barred, unrepentant, bloody splendor. I half expected someone to turn to camera and utter, Are you not entertained? I also had one of the coolest experiences while watching it, having an in-depth analysis on Twitter of the symbolism throughout the film with one of my favorite comic book writers, Vida Ayala. I'm not going to waste a whole lot more time because I'm about to go watch this movie again, and you should too. I mean, where else are you going to see Angela Bassett slow-mo kill a guy with a milkshake or Michelle Yeoh front flip off a balcony to strangle a thug with a spiked chain? And that's not even the best part. That title goes to Chloe Coleman's Emily, who is the heart of the entire thing, and I am filing the adoption papers now. Gunpowder Milkshake is now streaming on Netflix. Go watch Nebula and her mom, Cersei Lannister, kicks a major ass. Yeah, this sounds like a lot of fun. I'm I'm always all about, you know, strong, uh, independent women kicking booty. Uh, uh, you see a lot of that in my family anyway. So I'm all about, you know, stories that feature that. So this looks really, really good. And I've, although I've not watched it, it is definitely on my radar, Chris. All right, Dave. So I neglected this part of our our big talk but i i'm just so excited that you're caught up on a on a series with me after watching black widow after watching the entire series of loki how are you feeling about the mcu going forward well the the thing about black widow is that it doesn't really feel like a phase four kind of movie it, it it's very much stuck in the past it's a it's very much pre pre endgame and so um, I, I don't know how indicative it is besides, you know, the introduction of Yelena, uh, how indicative this is of what the MCU is going to be like moving forward. Loki, on the other hand, um, full spoilers here, um, obviously with the TVA sort of um, changed due to the death of, you know, he who remains, uh, I think, you know, obviously we're cruising for a, a very, very clear sort of exploration of multiverse. And that makes sense. I mean, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness uh, is on the horizon. There's all sorts of rumors about the next Spider-Man featuring sort of a multiverse tinge. Um, I, I'm excited for, you know, multiverse stuff. I like those kinds of stories generally really well. I hope um, the MCU decides to play around with that a little bit. Uh, I think there's an opportunity there to introduce, you know, alternate versions of characters that they might have lost. For example, imagine, you know, Iron Man shows up and opens up the armor and there's somebody else in there. You know, there there are interesting things that they could do with that. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for the whole multiverse thing, Chris. How about you? Yeah, I'm super excited. I, I think my biggest takeaway, number one, is Jonathan Majors as He Who Remains slash Kang was one of the best acting performances that I've ever seen on screen period. Like the, the way that he, his monologue just absolutely devoured all you can eat seafood buffet, that scene 
was just incredible. And it was, it was perfectly like lined up because the Emmy nominations came, if not that day, the next day. And it, it was just, pitch perfect timing uh and then i also need a team-up movie with yelena and uh alligator loki because they are my faves and i love them so much and i just need them in a team-up movie uh immediately yeah i can agree with that all right that wraps up another episode of the nerd by word podcast we thank you so much for your support uh be sure to follow us on social media at nerd by word on twitter and instagram or individually at that nerd dave and that nerd chris on twitter and instagram as well and of course if you like what you heard please uh jump on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a rating and a review we can of course be found wherever podcasts are available that includes you know all the usual suspects apple Podcasts, spotify tune in radio um, you can find us on um, audible uh, and of course on our very own website nerdbyword.com And if you, like us, are just a sucker for pain, be sure to join us next week for The Worst Comics We've Ever Read, Volume 2, for an airing of grievances of sorts. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.